mic check there, Bob. Okay, so this week we are going to be talking about the angelic announcements. God delivers the message of the coming Messiah through his angel Gabriel. So the question to consider as we move on through the lesson is how does fulfilled prophecy support the Bible's truthfulness. And same memory verse we've been using for about uh, three, four weeks now. Let's try to say it together. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So last week, we examined God's purposes in providing us with four Gospels rather than just one. Four different men, all inspired by God, revealed their eyewitness or secondhand experiences of Christ, each with a different goal, audience, and intention, but all revealing Christ. This week, we're actually going to get into the beginnings of the story. We're going to look at the angelic announcements of Christ and John the Baptist. So first of all, in Luke, pardon? Ready. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And the people waited for Zacharias, and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. 
So Zacharias and Elizabeth are a Levite couple, both descended from Aaron. They're described by Luke as righteous, or members of that remnant that sought to obey God's law. They're not saved righteous, but they are living the way God intended an Israelite, a Judean, to live. They're old and they're childless. How old, the Bible doesn't say, but well stricken in years probably puts them in their 50s or their 60s in a society where not everybody even lived that old. And God had left them childless for very many years. And the thing you got to consider, God left them childless for all those years so that he could set up the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. I think too often in our Christian lives, we're focused on our situation, which we perceive as miserable, and we don't see what God is setting us up for. But Zacharias' turn to serve had come out. And since there were 24 courses of the priesthood, each course only got to serve about two weeks a year. So 52 weeks a year, he was a member of the priesthood, but he only went to Jerusalem to serve for two weeks a year. And they all accounted that a great privilege. So he's burning incense at the altar of incense. And if you remember the layout of the temple, it's in the holy place, which means most people can't go in there. Only the priests go in there. But it's outside the veil, where only once a year went the high priest under very strict restrictions. The angel Gabriel appeared and... Zacharias is troubled and afraid. Gabriel tells Zacharias that his prayer is heard. Zacharias would have a son to be called John, a joy for many people. In the spirit of Elijah, he would drink no strong drink. The implication here is his son would be a Nazarite, a lifelong Nazarite. It's a special vow setting you aside for service of God. And he would be filled from the Holy Spirit from the womb. And Zacharias is just like us. He's probably spent 30 or 40 years praying for a kid. And an angel from God appears and says, you're going to have a child. And he just can't believe it. Praying for something for years, it's going to happen. Well, that's impossible. It's too late now. Zacharias is struck dumb, both as a sign and as a rebuke for his unbelief. People waiting outside, they're confused because it doesn't take that long to burn incense. He should have been out by now. Knowing people, there's people in the crowd going, ah, he's dead. (laughs) That's that's just the sick place people's mind goes to. You know, what are we going to do if the priest is in the temple dead? We can't go in after him. Uh, Oh, well, guess we'll get another priest. (laughs) But eventually Zacharias comes out, and he's gesturing to people. He's trying to get his message across, but he's dumb. And he probably has never played charades. So just imagine his frustration. The first word from God in 400 years, and he has it, and he can't talk. I'm thinking that was a very frustrating nine months in Zacharias' life. And also, remember, as most people are illiterate, it's not like he can ask for paper and pencil 
and write out his message. He stuck with bad charades. So Zacharias finishes his service, returns home where his wife conceives. She hides her pregnancy for five months. Now, the Bible's not clear, but to me, the answer's probably pretty clear. She's worried about a miscarriage. She doesn't want to come out and say, I'm finally pregnant, and then lose the kid. So she hides it as long as she can before she starts really showing, I'm assuming. That's my opinion. And she's joyful over the pregnancy. This removes her reproach. Remember, a woman that cannot bear, that's just, you know, that's her, that's her job, especially in that society in that time. Zacharias had to, I suppose he had to tell her something of his experience, but the Bible doesn't tell us how much. And all of this was done to fulfill prophecy. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. 4, 5, and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Malachi spoke of a messenger in the power and spirit of Elijah. And what made Elijah Elijah was he would call to repentance the people who didn't want to listen, and he would face off with authority. And that's what John the Baptist did. He rebuked the religious authorities because they were all about position and making themselves look good. They weren't about caring for the people. And he called people to repentance. And the phrase, turning the hearts of the children and the fathers toward each other, we talked about this when we were looking at Malachi in the Old Testament. And I believe, and this is, again, my personal opinion, feel free to take it or leave it, the biggest problem Israel always had was generational apostasy. This generation would be doing great, but their kids would do terrible. And their kids would often do worse. And the issue, of course, is the law of God clearly tells the fathers to instruct their children in the ways of God. Have you ever tried instructing a teenager in anything? It's a lovely experience, is it not? But if you turn the hearts of the fathers towards their children so that they honestly teach God's word, and you turn the hearts of the children to the fathers so they actually listen for once... You can tell I had teenagers. Then that problem of generational apostasy, which is the, it's the historic bugaboo of Israel. It's the source of all their problems. You read over and over in the Old Testament account, and that generation followed the Lord, but there arose another generation that knew not the Lord. That's been their problem all along. And it can happen here. Luke's gospel 100% fulfills this prophecy. Note that in 3.1, there are two different messengers. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom he seeks shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, there's two messengers. John the Baptist, the forerunner, 
and Christ who brought the message of the covenant and then fulfilled the requirements of the covenant. The second is associated with the day of the Lord, always a, a day of drama and a day of great change. And then in Luke chapter 3, 3 through 6, talking about John the Baptist's ministry, and he came from, into all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Isaiah also spoke this first messenger in chapter 40, verse 3 through 5. And John directly, Luke rather, directly quotes Isaiah here. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In other words, let nothing impede the spreading of the word of the Lord and prepare a way for many to repent and change their ways. Make it easy for them. And really, when you look at what God did, God did everything he could of, short of appearing on the steps of the temple in a, in a thunderbolt and saying, this is my son. He sent a messenger before Christ who very clearly said, he's coming. I ain't even worthy to tie his shoes, but he's coming. And then... Christ came and performed an absurd slew of miracles. I mean, you really had to be not looking to see what was going on. Okay? Only willful ignorance could possibly explain how many people rejected Christ. Because he was bringing a message that was inconvenient. They wanted the convenient message. They wanted a Messiah that was going to free them from Rome. That was their focus. Problem was, that wasn't God's intention. And like so many of us, you only want to listen to what you want to hear. You only want, that made sense. So, John the Baptist, the final forerunner pointing to Christ in Matthew chapter 11, Christ himself said, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus himself testified of John's role. And God was faithful to his promises and over 4,000 years of prophecies of Messiah. John's message was the first public words of God to Judah in over 400 years. This was the first prophet who came. Now, there was word of God to his father, but that wasn't public. But John was mighty public. Next passage in Luke, please, brother. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. 
He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. Amen. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. So we see a second announcement in the sixth month, not of the year, but the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Gabriel once again performs his messenger duty. Mary was also troubled or afraid, and Gabriel repeats his fear not comfort. Mary is told she will have a son named Jesus, called the son of the highest, sitting on the throne of David, reigning over Jacob, that is Israel, forever. Mary questions this, but it's interesting, she was not rebuked for her unbelief. You look at Zacharias, who says, how shall this be, for I'm an old man? And Gabriel says, you're going to be dumb for nine months. Mary says, how can this be? I don't know a man. She gets no rebuke from the angel. And I think it's, this illustrates a beautiful point. All of us are held by God to the same standard. Right? God's standard of sin, God's standard of salvation applies to all of us. But God loves us individually. Zacharias, an old man who had been praying for this very thing for 40 years, God's a little disappointed that he doesn't believe and asks for a sign. So he gets a sign. Mary, a young girl of 13, God expects the question, and he just answers it. It's a beautiful thing if you think about it. God knows our needs, and he comes down to our level. Gabriel tells her her birth will be virginal. This fulfills prophecy and is necessary to make Jesus the God-man, because he couldn't be just man. So God had to get involved here somewhere. Gabriel also tells her of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and Mary responds in simple humility and obedience. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Or in 9, 6, and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with justice and with, with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Very familiar passages, but they tell about the coming of Christ. So, of course, we read them once a year at least. Isaiah spoke 700 years before and prophesied the same things that Gabriel is telling Mary. A virgin birth called the mighty God, El Gibor in Hebrew, 
called the Everlasting Father, sitting on the throne of David forever. Now, Jesus' name, given to him by his parents, is Yeshua, which is Hellenized, and then Latinized, and then Anglicized, and finally ends up as Jesus. And Yeshua is also Joshua, is the way we would directly take it from the Hebrew into English. Or God saves in the Hebrew. Now, don't let them confuse you. We know who them is, right? Those who challenge the Bible. In Luke chapter 1, verses 5 and 36, Elizabeth is called Mary's cousin. But one of them is from the tribe of Levi, and the other is from the tribe of Judah. How can they be cousins if they're from different tribes? And this is a challenge that those who do not believe the word of God throw up in the faces of a Christian. Now, first of all, the Greek word syngenis does not mean first cousin or second or third or fourth. It just means kin. She was kin. But regardless of the Greek word, it's actually possible for the two of them to have been first cousins. Now, tribal descent was patrilineal. That is, it came down through your father. So if Mary's father was from the tribe of Judah, which he was because she was from the tribe of Judah, and Elizabeth's father was from the tribe of Levi, which he was because she was of the tribe of Levi, their mothers could have been sisters from either tribe. Wouldn't affect which tribe they were in. So, Don't let them confuse you. It's a simple explanation. Because tribal descent was by the father's lineage. Now, we don't know that they were first cousins because the Greek word doesn't tell us. It just means they were kin. But they could have been the closest possible kin, short of being, you know, an immediate family, without violating anything the word of God tells us. So when they bring, if they ever bring this up to you, just tell them, clearly you don't know your history. Also, don't let them confuse you on this. In Isaiah 7.14, we're told the virgin would call his name Emmanuel. Yet, his name was Yeshua, which is not Emmanuel. Yeshua is God saved. Emmanuel is God with us. Nowhere in the Gospels does someone walk up to Jesus the Christ and say, Hi, Emmanuel, how you doing? But he was also never called the mighty God, or wonderful, or the Prince of Peace. And this has to do with a given name versus a recognition of the character of someone. Okay, Jesus is also called the Christ. It's a title. It is not part of his name. He was Jesus, Yeshua ben Yosef, or Yeshua... I, I, I never have figured out the proper word this, but from Nazareth. But he was recognized as all of these things as descriptions of his nature. He was God with us because anybody who had any snap, who spent any time near him said, that's God. And he's with us. So he was recognized as Emmanuel. He was recognized as the mighty God. He was recognized as wonderful. He was recognized as the Prince of Peace. Don't let them tie you in circles. Got it? 
We move on. Now let's talk myth, 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 myth. I have developed a sudden lisp. Misconceptions in the long list of things of God that people willingly misunderstand. Let's talk a little bit about angels. Everyone's favorite subject, discussed from utter ignorance. They are created beings. They have a specific nature. They have specific duties. Some of them went off the rails. So what does the Bible say? First of all, they were created by God. In Exodus chapter 20, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Or in Nehemiah 9, 6, thou, even thou art God alone, thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is in therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth. Worship, worshipeth thee. From these two verses, it can be argued that the angels were created with the angles. Sorry about that. The angels were created within the first six days of creation. Now, honestly, when I read this in the lesson, I went, because hmm? in my head, I'd always believed, and I'm still not sure about this, but I'd always believed that the angels were pre-created, before the earth was created, I have no biblical basis for this. And when I read this argument, I went, hmm, hmm, I don't know. It seems a reasonable argument. But I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to stand before you and debate with you when angels were created. You know why? It's a very simple biblical principle. You got, I know you know it. A lot of you know it. Don't argue about what don't matter. If the angels were created a million years before the earth was created in eternity past, or if the angels were created during the six days of creation, does that affect my salvation? Does that affect any doctrines that matter one whit? So we could have a big argument about this and split the church. And that would be really, really dumb. So... Answers in Genesis says they were created during the six days of creation. And I say, sure, why not? I got no horse in that race. I got no candle at that funeral. Sure. But it's interesting, if they were created during the six days of creation, and, I, and when God rested, and even on day six, when he said everything was good, that would say Lucifer hadn't rebelled yet. So Lucifer rebelled in a relatively narrow band of time between creation and the original sin of man. I don't have a problem with that. I just really had never thought about it. So I leave that as something for you to contemplate. But don't let it mess up with your faith. Because it's something God hasn't revealed to us. And anything God hasn't revealed to us means that thing, anybody, doesn't matter. We don't need to know. We may know when, we'll probably know when we're in heaven. Should it affect our, our life on earth? Should it affect our salvation? Should it affect our church? No. So let it go. Hardest thing for some of us who love to argue to do. Let it go. I love me a good argument. So they're named, the angels that is, by type and by function. So in Isaiah chapter 6, be above it, 
stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The seraphim declare God's holiness before his throne. They are heralds. Their job, their function is to proclaim God's holiness. They appear in the same way in Revelation chapter 5, 11, and 12, praising Jesus in the same way. The cherubim, on the other hand, in Genesis 3.24, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And in Exodus 37, one cherub on the end on this side, and another cherub on the end on the other side, out of the mercy sheet made he the cherubim on the two ends thereof. And incidentally, when you're reading your King James cherubims with an S on the end, I'm afraid that's the scholar's misunderstanding of the Hebrew plural. Im is the Hebrew plural. Im at the end, cherub, cherubim, that's the plural. You don't have to tack an S on top. That's just an anglicization of a Hebrew word. So you can say cherubs in English, or you can say cherubim in Hebrew, but please don't say cherubims. But the cherubim are guardians. They're guardians of whatever God tells them to guard. But in particular, they're guardians of his holiness. All throughout the tabernacle, all throughout the temple, everything has cherubim embroidered on it. Which means God showed Moses what a cherubim looks like. A cherub, um, but they're, they're guardians. They're on the veil. They're on all the draperies. They were on the tent to guard the holiness of God inside from sin outside. Now, obviously that was symbolic. There weren't actual cherubim embroidered into the cloth, but it's the idea. It's the symbolism because that's not the true temple. True temple's up there. They have other functions. In Hebrews chapter 1, 13, and I guess 14, the author of Hebrews argues, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister them who shall be the heirs of salvation? So there's a function there as ministering spirits to the saints. And it's not specific in that passage, but I see it, again, my opinion Feel free to ignore me. I see it as an aspect of carrying messages. That is one of the big angelic fun functions, messengers. A similar function can be seen in Acts 8.26, when an angel of the Lord directed Philip to head out into the desert to meet the Ethiopian eunuch. Ministering to the saints, I believe, by carrying messages, by giving that impulse from God. Now, obviously, they're not carrying letters to Eric from God. Oh, thank you, Heavenly Post. That'd be a little silly. But that, that divine impulse. They have other functions. Uh, in Acts chapter 12. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them, the people. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of the words, he was eaten of worms, and gave up the ghost. 
There's one instance in the Bible of delivering God's judgment. And again, be very cautious about building any kind of a doctrine based on one appearance in the Bible. But angels have functions. Some chose to rebel. 2 Peter chapter 2, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, reflecting the fact that there are angels that sinned. In Ephesians chapter 6, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And in Colossians, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. God created the angels that rebelled, they chose to rebel. They, were, they have judgment prepared for them, but they're running around on the earth now, acting as princes, principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, which is why the, the Bible certainly warns us to be on guard. And closing out, what angels in the Bibles are not? First of all, they're not cute, adorable, or infantile. The little cherub with the arrow... Please get that image out of your head. Okay? Every time a cherub appears, his first words are always, fear not. Okay? If a cherub's got a bow and arrow, he looks like a hunter. And the mere sight of him makes you want to be elsewhere. That's not cute and cuddly. And then there's the whole guardian angels over the saint bits. You know, if we have... An omnipotent and omniscient God guiding our paths. What on earth do we need a guardian angel for? Isn't that a bit silly? Why would we ever, why would I ever want a second-rate protector like an angel when I've got God? For that matter, how insulting is it to God to suggest that there's some angel who has to improvise to keep me safe? God's omniscient and omnipotent. He's got it under control. He doesn't need no guardian angels running around. Now, once again, if you want to believe in guardian angels, I don't think it's affecting your theology a whole lot. I happen to think you're a bit off the beaten path, but it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't become an occasion for debate. Although, if you want to disagree with me, come talk to me about it. I love being wrong. <laughs> I've had lots of practice. Brother, come on up. Oh, actually, there's something I want to talk about. So Zacharias had doubts about Gabriel's message, and Mary wondered how she could have a son as a virgin. How can we look to their examples as we deal with our personal doubts about what we read in God's Word? Comment? Certainly. He was even mocking God in that. But if we look at more from the doubt angle, our doubt, rather than certainly Satan is always striving to create more doubt, I think, in our hearts. Reminding right. us of the sins we've committed, the Christ places we haven't lived up to. What? Christ didn't fall for it, did he? No, Christ didn't fall. Literally nor figuratively. That's right. Either way. Either Any way. other comment on this one, guys? Sorry, Richard. I called you up and then I just ignored you. I'm a meanie. 
Forgive me. Okay, how about this? As you think about how God uses people to accomplish his plans, how are you falling short of the type of submission to God's will that Mary exhibited in the passage we studied? Anyone want to take that one up? It's a noisy class this morning. All right, I'm just not going to wait them out. Come on, brother. <laughs> 